0: Amen. All right, let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. If you don't have a Bible, please pick one up over on the table. You can follow along with us. That's Isaiah chapter 53 of the Bible. If you're not sure where Isaiah is, it goes Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then we're, we're at Isaiah. So we're at Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to end up looking at verses 1 to 10 this morning. But before we read, I got a question for you. How much, and you do not have to say this out loud because I know this could get really awkward. So it's like a rhetorical question. I always remember early on I asked rhetorical questions that I did not mean to have answered and a relative was there and answered the question, and it completely derailed the whole sermon. Uh, so please don't derail it. Not this early into it. How much do you spend on Christmas? How much has Christmas this year cost you? So we're thinking decorations, gifts, food, etc. How much? Uh, the way if I, I did a little research on it, multiple sites— on average, an American family spends about $800 on Christmas. It ends up totaling about $178 billion in gift spending. And based on last year's numbers, a third of that is bought by debt. So from last year, a third of what people spent on 2021's Christmas is still being paid for. And then when you add in today's world and inflation and uh, how, how many people have experienced any sticker shop shopping where you're like, oh my goodness, you, you, you pick up the item, you're like, all right, this is what we're going to get. You get to the register, maybe you didn't pay attention. They're like, it's this much. And you're like, whoa, that, that sticker shop, they have no idea. And that's really the world we live in, right? Christmas is expensive. It is costly if we allow it. But I need you you to realize, we're going to look at the cost of Christmas this morning through the book of Isaiah, but we're going to realize that this is the actual cost for the reason for Christmas, the actual uh, cost. And what we're going to see is this priceless gift of God sending his son born to die so that we might live. Uh, There is no such thing as a price tag on that. It's that Uh, remarkable. It's beyond measure. And that's what we're going to do, the immense cost of the suffering servant. If you're taking notes, you have the outline, you're going to follow along with us. We're going to ask three questions, pretty simple. Who's to blame for the suffering of the servant? So where can we point the finger? Where can we give credit where credit is due when it comes to this suffering servant? Secondly, we're going to ask the question, what was bore by the suffering of the servant? What did he come for? Why did he come? What did he accomplish? And in the midst of all of it, the last question is: Where is beauty in the suffering of the servant? What good can be seen in such a dark, bleak situation? All right, so let's begin. That's that first question: Who's the blame for the suffering of the servant? Uh, What we've seen context-wise, both the first week when I preached and then last week with Andy. Preaching Isaiah is one of those books, as those words from God that's filled with a lot of judgment and it's earned judgment. God's people have been unfaithful, and God is giving them the consequences of their unfaithfulness. And this is true even as we look at this suffering servant. Part of the problem is God's people have not been faithful servants, so God has to send a servant in their place to show them and to do what only a faithful servant can do. And part of that faithful servant will be suffering great affliction. All right, so the question, though, who is to blame for the suffering of the servant? Number one, man's sinful heart. Read verse two with me. Or read one and two and three, actually. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And what we read in that is that the suffering servant did not receive the kind of expectation that you and I would expect for somebody who is bringing very good news. Growing up, I always wished it never happened. I, always, I think his name was Ed McMahon. I wanted Ed McMahon to show up to my house. Why? Because he was the publisher clearinghouse guy. I wanted somebody to knock on my door and there'd be this giant big check and there would be balloons and a, a band playing and all I would find out my family just won millions of dollars awesome never happened and I would watch it on tv and see these surprised families and what never happened when I watched it nobody ever said get off my property never happened Nobody ever pulled a gun out. At least they never showed these particular experiences. They never were shooting at or they, nobody ever killed the publisher killing house crew that came. And yet it, it, it sounds kind of ridiculous that that would ever be the response, but that's what happens when God's suffering servant comes. Listen to it. They're despising him. There's the ongoing rejection. They're hating him. Why are they hating him? John 3, 19, it says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So baby Jesus coming, the suffering servant coming into this world, it hit a nerve with sinners. And the response, naturally as sinners, was rejection, despising. If you go on to chapter 52, so right before it talks about how, uh, in verse 14, as many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That is a, a reference to what? The crucifixion. So they despised him, they hated him, they marred him. They, it says here in verse 3 that they hid their face from him, probably for two reasons. One, indifference. They didn't care that he suffered. They turned a blind eye to it. But then secondly, they hid their face from him because they felt shame and guilt as the perfect one. John 15, 25, it says, They hated me without reason. They esteemed him not. They didn't revere him. I mean, think about it. This is the Son of God coming on the scene, and they were unimpressed. Part of the problem is what we read in verse 2. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. Think about this in physical appearance, Jesus was ordinary. We've read, we've been studying in 1 and 2 Samuel, and we're gonna get in 2 Samuel uh, not too long once we get back in. We're gonna read about one of David's sons, Absalom. It says there was no flaw. Like he was as good looking of a man as you could imagine. Jesus was not, and we rejected him, and we despised him. But you see, this was a symptom of a bigger problem. It was a symptom of a bigger problem. Go down to verse 5 with me. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we start seeing, here's the problem. It's not just that, that the suffering servant was rejected. Why was the suffering servant rejected? Because of the what? Because of the heart. Because of the wickedness of man, of sin. Notice that it says, all have turned the ways all of them and that's that's your sin that's my sin we were a stray sheep romans 3:10 says there is no one righteous not even one there is no one who understands there is no one who seeks god he goes down to verse 23 of romans 3 for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god friends when we talk about baby jesus we need to realize he came born to die and he came born to die because of you and i and we're culpable that we're responsible. I remember a song back in the day, and it's called The Hammer. And the guy was a witness to the crucifixion. And he's watching it, and he is overwhelmed emotionally seeing this innocent man be killed before his eyes. And he's furious. And He's like, who's doing this? And why is this being done? And he kept asking, who nailed him there? And the crowd begins to mock him and laugh at him. And he says, oh my God, I do not understand. And then he turned and he saw the hammer in his hand. He nailed him there. Friends, when we start talking about the cost of Christmas, I want you and I to be very aware this morning. The immensity of the cost. It's because of you and I. We nailed him there. Our sin, our guilt, our disobedience, our transgressions. Well, do you see the blame in the crucifixion? Are you owning your sin today? Not only do we see man's sinful heart, though, we see God's sovereign hand at work in the suffering servant. Read verse 6 with me. The Lord laid on him the iniquity. Yahweh laid the iniquity of, him, of us all on him. And then go down to verse 10. Yet it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. You get that? God is not guilty of this, okay? And I think there is an in, the infinite with our finite minds. This is really hard for us to grasp and wrap our, our thoughts around. Because you and I are responsible, yet God was sovereignly carrying out the will, but he's not responsible for our sin, but we need to understand this. We need to come to grips with this. Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and love, blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Did you read that? I mean, that's some, some weighty stuff. But the big picture, it says, Before the world existed, God had a plan to adopt us as his sons through Jesus Christ. So that's always, God is at work in this. God willed the crucifixion. It's not just improvising. Who is the greatest improviser that you've ever seen? My my definition of the greatest improviser is MacGyver, right? MacGyver, you give him a toothpick, Kleenex, a Q-tip, and our communion cups, and he will defuse a nuclear bomb and also kill 20 bad guys. He's pretty nifty with what he's able to do. I think sometimes when we think about the cross, we, 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 we give God the wrong credit. We look at it as though God is improvising. Like, I'm going to make use of the cross. That's not it. No, God, God is a master conductor, carrying out a masterpiece of music, that everything that's happening is happening according to his will. Listen to Jesus, Matthew 26. At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leaving a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me, but this is all taking place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled and all the disciples deserted him and fled but he doesn't act as one in the gospel who doesn't accept his fate. Because it's not fate, it's God's will, it's, it's God's purposes. There's no, hey, let's fight, let's see what happens. What does he do when Peter's cutting ears off? He's like, put the sword away. Like, what are you doing? Matthew 26, Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Christ actively obeyed his Father's will through the cross. He went to the cross willfully at any point. God, Jesus is not a victim. God could have stopped it. But he knew the cost of Christmas, that he had to do this so that you and I might have life. But he was born for this reasons. So we have to ask, is Romans 8.28 True. That God works all things for the good. Because we quote it all the time, right? We have stuff, maybe knickknacks in our house. Might have a bumper sticker. But do you believe it? How about in your life? Let's get personal. I prayed for a lot of heavy stuff today, didn't I? We got people... Potentially on vents. We've got people battling cancer. And in the midst of all of those things, I think it's a natural response for us sitting here saying, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Because I'm not seeing it, God. I don't see how you can use tragedy and pain and affliction for good. Well, look no further than here. Look no further than Jesus coming, born of a woman so that he would live a perfect life, die on a cross so that you and I might truly live. And that is God's handiwork. So we see the blame, man's sinful heart, God's sovereign hand. But what was bore by the suffering of the servant? It's more than an example. What is God doing tangibly and eternally Through the suffering. First of all, he bore our sins. Read verse 4 with me again. It says, he has bore our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteem them stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought his peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away to his own way yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all we need to remember the garden God gave a very clear command the day that you eat from the tree that I'm forbidding on that day you will surely in the Hebrew it's really there's an emphasis here you will surely die die And there is a sense where that is true on on a a whole tons of level. One specific is you're going to physically die, and then there's going to be a spiritual death as a result of your sin. That's what Romans 6.23 says. For the wages of sin is death. That there is a spiritual component of God's wrath being endured by sinners because of sin. And that's what it means when it says he's smitten and stricken by God, pierced and crushed. He had to deal with the weight of our sin. I forget the name of the gentleman. It's Eddie something, I think. He's one of the world's strongest men. And I was watching a video this week. Now, it had wheels, so it's not as impressive. He pulled a plane. Kind of impressive, right? Anybody here pull a plane? Recently. Nobody. Okay, he pulled this plane probably the length length of this gym. I mean, that's a lot of weight that he is putting upon himself, uh, pulling this rope in order to do it. Friends, that's nothing compared to the weight of your sin and my sin. The burden of the cross. 2 Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The sinless one, never sinned, treated as a sinner. The weight of our sins being experienced by him with the punishment that was due to us. That's the worst part of the cross, friends. It's not the physical. We, Some of you have seen reenactments of the cross. You you see the the floggings and the 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 nails, and you're like, that is terrible. None of that compares to what Jesus was truly dealing with. None of it compares. In the Garden of Gethsemane, was Jesus afraid of going through some physical suffering? No. What he was afraid of, and why he kept talking about a cup, right? What he was afraid of is that he was going to experience the wrath of God due to sinners upon him. Listen to Martin Luther. He, he so eloquently explains the weight of this. He became the greatest sinner that ever was. No one ever feared death so much as this man. He feared it because for him, it was not sleep But the wages of sin, it was death with the sting, death unmodified and unmitigated, death as involving all that sin deserved. He alone would face it without a covering, providing by his dying the only covering for the world by doing so as a holocaust, totally exposed to God's abhorrence of sin. There was no protection when he was on the cross. Unmitigated wrath. How expensive is Christmas? This is it. What does the cross teach us about sin? Does God take sin seriously? Do we, do we grasp what awaits sinners? I think twofold, this should impact us on how we live our lives to strive for godliness and holiness and not this coddle sin in our lives because it, it was such a big deal that his son had to experience the wrath of God on our behalf. And likewise, I think it should break our heart, it should motivate, it should drive us to our unbelieving friends, neighbors, co-workers, and strangers in this world. Because friends, the people that don't trust in Christ, they get to experience what Jesus experienced just for their sins. They're going to experience the unmitigated wrath of God, and it's going to be eternal with no second chances. So he became, uh, he bore our sins, but he also, he he became our substitute. This is important to see. Verse 5, notice what it says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for, say it with me, our iniquities. He brought us peace. By his wounds, we are are healed. We're, We're seeing that personal language. A lot of us and ours being dealt with by him and his. It's substitution language. His punishment, our peace. His wounds, our healing. I mean, it is so wild when you think about it. It's imagining you and I committed a heinous crime, the crime scene has our DNA, has our fingerprints everywhere. It is an open, shut case, and Jesus comes in, wipes the crime scene clean, puts his DNA, his fingerprints all over, and it's as if we were never there, and as if He is guilty for what we accomplished and did. Hebrews 9:12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and by calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. You see, he's not just dealing with sin in some generic fashion. He's not only dealing with the way to sin, he's dealing with our particular sins on our behalf. Friends, and this means sins beyond our comfort level. You understand that? Jesus was treated like a rapist. Jesus was treated like a pedophile. Jesus was treated like a serial killer. He was treated, you think of all the sins, all the bad sins that you and I, like, well, that's not me. I mean, I'm not like that. He dealt with all of it. Whoever killed those four college students in Idaho, he's being treated as if he did that. You understand the magnitude of what he did on our behalf. Think of your sins personally, your worst sins, your sins that if we posted them on the projector right now, you would walk out of here in shame, never to come back to this church because you would never want to face one another. Guess what? He dealt with that sin. That's what he did. He did as our substitute. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. What is the cost of Christmas? This is it, him being our substitute. Why would he stand in our place, though? Are you amazed by this act of grace and mercy and love? What's your response? And friends, we're going to get some gifts over the next week or so, and some of them might be like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe somebody was this thoughtful. I can't believe somebody spent this much. Friends, this gift that Jesus came born to die so that you and I might live, it should overwhelm us. And it shouldn't just be at Christmas time. This should be something 12 months out of the year we're constantly reflecting on, meditating on, like, how can this be that my God would die for me? And that's where we start seeing the beauty. So we ask, who's to blame? Man's sinful heart, God's sovereign hand. Uh, we saw ultimately uh, what was born: our sins, our substitute. Well, what good came from this suffering? What changed? First of all, we see life instead of death. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Kind of bleak verse, right? Very dark. Not very optimistic. Does not look good. But then we get down to verse 10. When his soul makes an offering through guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You see the difference? That through his death, his offspring will have prolonged days. We, as a culture, we as a society, obsess about living long, right? I mean, let's be honest. Nobody wants to die early. Nobody's like, man, I'm hoping I hit 40 and then it's over. We, we want, it, but we, we do. We exercise, diet. There are even people out there that when they die, they, they have themselves frozen. Like it's real. Like it's not just science, because they think somehow we're going to come with a cure and then we'll come back and bring them back and they'll be able to live longer. I remember even like the, the story, I think it was Tuck Everlasting. And the character, this family found this well of, of water. Uh, that granted immortality and they had to deal with that reality that they would live generations and generations beyond everybody else dying. And we, we kind of, I think, innate within us, we want that kind of longevity. Well, here it is. You want to live forever? God's taking care of it. It's Jesus. Read verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, we'll see the light of life, we'll live forever. And that's the beauty of Isaiah. Though it has judgment, there's hope. That God will ultimately, through this suffering servant, bring life Everlasting. 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. In other words, life everlasting awaits God's people. So friends, as we have heavy things we deal with, as Tim and Becky say goodbye to her mother, we have hope in the gospel. When Garrick and Tanya say goodbye to his mother this week, We have hope in the gospel that though this is the end on this earth, it's not just the end, it's really the beginning. If you're facing your own mortality today, this is not the end no matter how soon that mortality takes place here because of Jesus, 1 John 5 11. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you to believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, friends, are you worried about the future? Are you worried about your life? The beauty, the beauty of Christmas is not just a little baby in a manger. The beauty of Christmas is that baby's going to grow up, die in our place, and give me life. And although my, my trajectory by birth, I was sinful, my trajectory when I came out is destination for wrath and condemnation because of Jesus, I can have hope, I can have a future, I can have glory because it's not just life instead of death. Here's the big deal. It's righteousness instead of guilt. Read verse 11 with me. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many. Listen to that. He will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He will, that language of made righteous, we use a term in theological worlds, and it's called justified This is the reason that we have life instead of death. This is how we have forgiveness, is we need to be justified. This is really the climax of even these verses for us. It's the pinnacle of our discussion that Jesus justified us. Because here's what happens for you and I. You and I, when we look in a mirror, what do we typically see? It with you and I, right? I mean, you're gonna be a little disturbed if you look in a mirror and someone else is looking back at you. I'm gonna be like, Abby, am I seeing something? Like, because I'm looking and like the the person back at me, no, but but what happens through the gospel. When you and I look in the mirror, ultimately what we see back is we see the righteousness of Christ, because that's what it means to be justified. It's a legal declaration of righteousness by God. It's a legal right standing before God. It's as if a judge is, you're in a court case, he looks at you and says he has been declared not guilty. And that's what Jesus has done. Romans 3.28 says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. We are now seen differently by God. Romans 5.1, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that you and I are no longer his enemy, but we're children. No longer at war, but we're at peace. We're no longer awaiting his wrath, but we're experiencing Grace, no longer are we guilty of our sin, but we are forgiven. Is that good news today? Amen? That that is is the beauty of Christmas. That God did something that I could have never done in my own strength. Impossible. He's done that. So I have to ask us, and I want us to be thinking about this. What is saving you this morning from God's wrath and judgment Are the lyrics true? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Though my sin has left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Friends, if you know Christ today, that describes you. That is the best of news. There's not a gift you're going to get in the next week, kids. And I know that discourages you when you hear that. Like, well, I've got some pretty good gifts I'm asking for I'm holding out hope. None of them compare to this gift. So I want to challenge, I want to encourage us this week to appreciate the gift. Don't lose sight of the gift amongst a bunch of gifts. I, I, I really just, I know in my own life, I need to appreciate more the cost. Of Christmas, that's why we even went with this passage today. I want us to to really kind of wrap our minds around it. There was a song, turned into a book, turned into a movie. But I want to reference this because I think it's a good uh, illustration to kind of land our discussion this morning. It's called "The Christmas Shoes." Who knows what I'm talking about? Little boy, he's kind of poor. He really wants to give his mom. A special gift at Christmas. Backstory, his mom is dying. Not even sure if she's going to make it through Christmas. So he, he wants to give her the special gift. Gets to the register, runs out. Of, he doesn't have enough money. Part of me is like, cashier, just let him have the gift. Come on, dude. He's like, you don't have enough money. Guy behind him sees the story, steps in, gives him the money. It's such an emotional song. So I thought about it. I was like, do I really want to use this as my closing illustration? And I went with it, so I'm going to try to keep it together. But I want to read the lyrics because I think it it really helps us to appreciate. It's Christmas Eve. These shoes are just her size. Could you hurry, sir? Daddy says there's not much time. She's been sick for quite a while. And I know these shoes would make her smile. And I want her to look beautiful. Beautiful. if mama meets Jesus tonight. And the guy's like, I knew I caught a glimpse of heaven, his love, as he thanked me and I ran out, and he ran out. And I knew that God had sent that little boy to remind me of just what Christmas is all about. Friends, you and I, we don't need shoes when we meet Jesus. But you know what we do need? We need his righteousness. Righteousness. We need forgiven. We need justified. When you and I stand before him, he's not going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You worked so hard. You went to church. You read your Bible. You gave. You did that. You sang at the caroling when it wasn't canceled. Whatever the case may be, he's going to say, well done and good and faithful servant because he sees Jesus. Because he has justified us. So, friends, I I want us to understand the costly gift of his son this year. Like, there's not a gift even in the neighborhood of what God did, sending his son in your place. There's not anything of more value and worth that Jesus was willing to do it to unworthy sinners, to guilty people. He did it willfully. The priceless gift of God sending his son born to die so that we might live, that price tag is beyond measure. Don't forget the cost this year. Don't forget the cost this Christmas. Romans 5, 6, you see at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us. And here's the cost of Christmas. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. I'll speak on behalf of myself. I can't speak for everybody else. But Lord, I don't appreciate. I at times don't value I don't consider the cost of you sending your son. At times in my own self-righteousness, I don't think I'm that bad. I don't think I had that great of a need. I appreciate Jesus, but I don't really value what he has accomplished. So Lord, I ask for forgiveness. I ask for forgiveness for anybody who can Uh, echo those kind of thoughts, and I pray, God, I pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to be a people that truly understand the cost, that truly celebrate what Jesus did. I pray for this week that it would be a special week for us as we celebrate Christmas. That would be a week where we esteem Christ for who he is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to celebrate communion. Let me get a drink. Luke 22, it says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After t- taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, "Take this and divide it amongst you. For I tell you, I now drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes." And he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, "This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you." But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. I think in light of what we talked about today, when we celebrate, I, I want you to think very uh, seriously when we sing, when we take the elements, when we, we have that bread in your hands, remember his broken body. When you drink from the cup, remember his blood shed. Friends, that Christmas is the gateway to Easter, Right? Christmas was the the catalyst where we had somebody that could come and live a perfect life so that you and I might live. So be celebratory in that. This is such good news. No matter what's going on in your life, health crisis, financial difficulties, relationship turmoil, the one thing that doesn't change for you Christians is this, that I'm right with God because of Jesus. So who should take part Anybody that's a believer. But Paul does warn us to to guard our hearts and our minds. He says, Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself for he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, please don't participate. Please don't. Use this time to pray. Use this time to think, reflect, sing along with us. Uh, If you are a believer, but you are in a really dark season of willful rebellion, and you just don't feel right, I don't want to numb the conscience. I, I don't want to minimize the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you shouldn't take part either. Maybe you should use this time to talk with the Lord. But please don't do this. This is not for perfect people. So if you were imperfect last week, you can't take it. Guys, put the elements away. We're not even doing it. All right? So no, that's not the case. So if you're a believer, participate with. It. Parents, as always, if your child is walking with Jesus, they believe in Christ, we see evidence of faith in their life, you're seeing fruit, they should participate, too. We don't have a specific age at our church that we require. But don't be in a hurry. You do want them to have some sense of meaning and understanding of what is being accomplished. So let me briefly pray, pray for the elements. We're going to pass the elements out while we sing, and then we'll participate at the very end, and then will close up our time. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you give us these moments. You give us these little breaks in the midst of the hustle and bustle of life, that we can have times of refreshment for our weary souls. So we pray for that end. We, we pray that this time as we sing, as we uh, take of the elements that uh, no matter what's going on, no matter how heavy life is, that God, that you would take a little bit of that burden off of us through this time. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.